Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. All right. See, I didn't think I was going to have to come up here and say that was a cute little pity pet thing you did for Abby there. But good morning, Imago. Before we get into what I have to say, let's, let's not leave what Joe just said so quickly because I do think that it matters and it's important. And if you could just take a minute to really just kind of ask yourself, should I be a part of that ministry? Should I be a part of, of caring for these kids who are on the streets? I was thinking about Joel Paul's little girl, Eden, who you all know is like a special person in my heart and stuff, and so I was thinking about her because today is her birthday, and thinking about these children, just, I I can't even imagine her making a transition from there to there, but if you feel just the smallest, slightest tug in your heart that you should be involved in that ministry, then please, by all means, check with Joe or Tim, right, Um, and, and really just consider being a part of it. All right, let's get in here. Before, before. Before time was space, Father, there was you. Before space was place, Father, there was you. Before beginning began, before earth begat land, before day beheld night, before birds took to flight. Before birds took to air, before Adam was there, Father, there was you. Before help was meet, Lord, you loved me. Before Eve did eat, Lord, you loved me. Before Abel and Cain, before Noah's reign, before Job's travail, before Jonah's wail, before Lazarus slept, before Jesus wept, Lord, you loved me. Before then brought now, God, you called me. Before if brought how, God, you called me. Before parents were, before he liked her, before flesh met need, before womb met seed, before seed made me, before me loved thee, God, you called me. Before when becomes then, Lord, I love you. Before Christ comes again, Lord, I love you. Before metal turns rust, before dust finds dust, before daylight done, before eyes see sun, before Satan bound, before trumpet sound, Before eternity, for eternity, Father, Lord, dear God, I love you. I had not written a poem since I was eight years old until this one, almost 30 years later. And I was in a particularly difficult place in my life, and this spilled out of me. And I was talking to a friend of mine named Anthony, and I read it to him, and he thought about it, And he looked at me and he said, you know, I can't help but wonder if God is in heaven right now saying, have you considered my servant Michelle? Right? I heard somebody go, what? Because that was the first thing I did was, what? Because that is Job. And I thought, I'm not feeling that. I'm not even feeling that a little bit. Because nobody wants to live like Job lived. And then the next day I woke up and I thought about it and I said, you know, God, if that is your will, then if I have to go through something like Job went through, then I want to go through it the way Job went through it. Now, this is before I knew as much about Job as I do now. (laughs) I 
was I thinking? Cut to some years later, and I was coming home from being at church and having a really difficult time because that week I had found out that I was going to have a second surgery that was going to make it impossible for me to have children. Some of you know I can't have kids and that I had to have surgery to make that, you know, and that that happened. So I went home that day and I was saying my prayers and I was just devastated. I was despaired. And I said to God, I, I, I tried to just, you know, get up for prayer. You ever just try to just get up for prayer and just can't get up for it. And I just said to him, you know, I, I don't even know what to say to you right now. That's some kind of prayer, right? I don't even know what to say to you right now. And he spoke into my spirit and said, you give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And so I wrote that in my journal and promptly fell asleep. It was all I needed. It was all I needed. Fast forward to a time when I was really frustrated. Everything was unsatisfactory in my life. I had called off my engagement, couldn't have kids, financial problems, didn't have a job, everything was wrong. I was just done. And so I decided I was going to go home and I was going to have it out with God. So I go home get in my bed with my journal and my pen and my Bible and my arms crossed because I'm going to have it out with God. And I sat there. And then I sat there. And then I sat there. And I'm stubborn, but he's God. So I sat there for an hour and a half. And then finally this very quiet voice said to me, you're angry at me. Now, I had never up to that point said, I am angry with God because I was too holy for that. <laughs> so when I heard those words, I knew it wasn't me. Had to be God because I would never have said such a thing. So I said, why? And he said, you think I owe you. You think because you've been in ministry and you've loved me and you've prayed and you've done and you've served and you this and you that and you know this and you've given up that, you think I owe you, and that your life should be more satisfactory than it is right now. I, I couldn't argue with him. He was right. That is exactly what I felt. Don't you hate it when God's just like right, right in the moment? You can't say anything back. He's just right. So he was right. And I said to him, I, I don't want to be this person, so tell me what to do. And instead of telling me what to do, he simply said, where were you? Where were you? Now, that's normally a question that many of us ask God, right? Where were you? We usually ask it when we're in the midst of suffering and when we're in the midst of something that's really difficult and we're struggling and it's hard and we say, where were you? It's not an unreasonable question. Our God is omnipotent and he's omnipresent and he's omniscient. Should he not also be omni-accounted for? Omni-agreeable, omni-right here up in my face and doing what I need him to do. Omni-all of it. Omni-mine. Omni 
variations on that question are, how or why did you let that happen to me? Why did you not prevent this other thing from happening? Why did he or she get sick? Why did he or she die? When will he or she pay for what they did to me? It's the disciples to Jesus. Do you not care that we perish? It's Martha to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's Jesus to the disciples. Could you not tarry with me for an hour? Where were you? It's a question that comes back from God to us in the story of Job. Now, it's a familiar story to many of us, but I think it's worth a recap. Let's start in Job 1, 1 through 3. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless, think of the upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. Don't forget those things. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man of all the people in the East. Job didn't just have stuff. Job was a great man. He was a good man. He had a good family. His kids would have birthday parties with each other. They'd invite all of them to each other's houses and they'd have these parties. And Job was such an amazing father that in the next day he would offer sacrifices to God because he'd say, just in case my kids have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, I'm going to make a sacrifice on their behalf. So Job was this incredible guy who, as the word says, was blameless and he was upright and he feared God and he shunned evil, not just for himself, but for his whole family. And he was a great man. In fact, it says he was the greatest man among all the people in the East. So now, fast forward, we're in heaven. God's kicking it with the angels. Satan comes up. God says, what up, dude? Satan says to him, I'm just walking around, hanging out. God says, have you considered my servant Job? God begins to boast about him and says the same thing, that he's blameless, that he's upright, that he fears God, and he shuns evil. And Satan says to God, yeah, well, I'd do that too if you gave me all the stuff you gave Job. I'd serve you too if you were as nice to me as you are to Job. God says, take your best shot. He'll still be that guy. Take all his stuff. Satan does exactly that kills his kids, takes his oxen, kills them, burns his place down, literally takes every single thing Job has. And Job's response at this point, it says in Job 1, is that at this point Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head because he was in mourning. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart, he said. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Fast forward, second meeting in heaven. This time, Satan says, that's fine, but skin for skin is what he says. He says, yeah, I took all his stuff. God says, yeah, and he's still got integrity. Satan says, but. Let me attack his body. God says, take your best shot. Just can't kill him. So he does it, afflicts him with sores and pain and boils from his toes to his head. It says his flesh and his bones were hanging from him and he was devastated, physically ruined. 
His wife is so put, us up, put out by all this is that she just wants, cur- she wants him to curse God and die. And his reply to her is, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, most of us know these things about Job. We also know about his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They tell him in different ways, clearly you've done something or you wouldn't, be su- you wouldn't be suffering like this. You must have done something wrong, or you wouldn't be dealing with this punishment right now from God. There's some hidden sin somewhere. You just need to repent. You need to own it. We know about all this, and they tell him he should accept what's going on with him because clearly he deserves it. And we marvel at the patience of Job and his willingness to accept all that stuff and endure. And we use this information to help people that we think we're helping. When they're suffering, we say, look at Job. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we try to tell them this is how they should go through suffering as well, the same way Job did, patiently and accepting. And then we try to go through suffering ourselves, and we fail miserably. And yeah, it's true that Job absolutely said that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And he absolutely said, you know, shall we accept good from God and not accept trouble? But when we talk about Job's acceptance and his patience, we may be telling the truth, but we're not telling the whole truth. He was patient, but that's not all he was. He was accepting, but that's not all he was. And because the truth that we tell about Job is incomplete, Instead of making us, tr- us free, that truth makes us more trapped and more imprisoned than ever by the grief and the pain that we suffer and less inclined to trust God and less inclined to trust one another. So I want to spend a little bit of time today putting flesh to the suffering of Job. And when I say put flesh to it, I mean make it real. Make it something that's a little more grounded, that's a little more... Um, It's a little fuller, a little more accurate. Because what Job himself teaches us about suffering is really helpful. And I want to look at, um, I want to look at four things that Job teaches us about suffering that we may not know because we spend so much time in the patience and acceptance place that we miss a fuller, weightier picture of what it means to really suffer. So there are four lessons that Job can teach us, and then what it does is it gets, by the time we get to the question, where were you, it's a little more um, capable of centering us as opposed to pointing a finger at us. So lesson number one, shock and confusion makes sense. Job is not just taking things as they come, just kind of chilling and letting it happen, right? He's stunned. He's so stunned he wants to die. He's so stunned, he wishes he were never born. Let's look at Job 3. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest for trouble comes. When you look at this, this is the picture of a man who is struggling and wrestling and toiling and in pain. He genuinely wishes he had never been born. 
And having been born, he says in Job 3 that he wishes he could die. He even says, God, why don't you just put me out of my misery? Why put me through this? Just put me out of my misery. He's stunned and he's confused. He has no idea how this has happened to him. What he describes here when he says that, when he says that, um, that he's hedged in, God had once hedged him in with protection and now that hedging in has become a prison for him. It's become a tight place. Paul describes us as being in a tight place when we have to endure some things. And it means to be, to be trapped on all sides and to be unable to move. But then he says something interesting. He says, what I greatly feared and dreaded has come upon me. Think about that for a second. Job had everything. Money, family, kids, prosperity, reputation. He had it all, and yet he was afraid. I find that interesting, that he lived this life with fear. Stick a pin in that. Lesson number two, Job has a legitimate complaint, and he states it. He says, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out of the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Now, most of us are like Job's friends. We would tell a person, just, just don't do that. Don't, he's God. Don't complain like that. Don't yell like that. Don't scream, don't rail like that. Something must be wrong, there's gotta be an explanation, but don't talk back to God in this. And Job is like, no, show your face, tell me what I did wrong, because I didn't do anything wrong. And he says, he says, tell me what charges you have against me. He says, I loathe my very life, and I'm gonna give free reign to my complaint. Don't you, I wanna say, okay, don't you hate it? When people come to you when you're in your suffering and because they don't know what to do with you, they want to tell you scripture? Isn't that annoying? They literally weaponize scripture. They come to you with a Bible and they're like, oh, it's just so bad that you're feeling this way. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. <laughs> Count it all joy when you fall into various temptations because God's working your faith. Praise him! <laughs> and you feel worse than when they got there, right? This is Job's friends. And I own that I have done that before. It's usually a response when I don't know how to respond. I feel like I need to just say something. Well, God's good. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Try not to rejoice with those who weep and weep with those who are rejoicing. But I think that we're ashamed to complain because somebody comes back at us with this. We have this shame and we say to ourselves, complaining makes us weak. Complaining means that we don't have faith, that we don't honor God, that we don't respect him. But the truth of the matter is, is that transparency before God is actually proof of our strength. 
Because he says, my strength is perfected in your weakness. So owning that weakness is our strength. It's proof of our faith that we complain before God. It's proof. Because why? Because we know that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's proof that we honor him. Shameless plug. Tomorrow we're talking about transparency in the friendship summer series. Because it's important for us to understand that transparency is proof of relationship with God. And so when we tell people not to complain, or we don't want to hear their complaint, or we meet their complaint with a Bible verse to try to shut them up because there's something in us that's afraid of their, of their struggle, then we're not being a good friend. We're not being a good friend like Abraham and God, or Moses and God, or Mary and God, or Hannah, Jesus and Paul, they all met God with their complaints. If there's any way that this cup could pass from me, I'd be good with that. I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Moses, if you don't go with us, we won't go. Abraham, it grieves me that you want to take Ishmael from me. This honesty before God is something we should encourage in one another when they're suffering, not, not shut it down. Lesson number three, declare your desire. Ask for what you want. Desire is not selfish. Job wanted to have his say, and he says it over and over and over and over again. Throughout the book of Job, Job continues to express his specific desire, and that is that God would come down and tell him, God, come here, tell me what I did. It's interesting that most of his desire is not, stop doing this to me. He'd rather die. He'd just, look, just kill me. If you're not going to kill me, then come down and tell me what I did. But this becomes a desire that he, he states over and over and over again. Now, we like to look at Job 13, 15, but only the first part. We like to look at that part where it says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. How many of you have seen that verse and thought that's all there was? <laughs> that's not all there was. What's the next part? I will surely defend my ways to his face. I love that about Job. I was like, go on, Job. It's a part of a larger statement. It's a part of a larger statement that says, this is my desire. I want God to show up. This is what I want so that I can speak to him face to face. Now, his friends keep telling him, you need to not say that stuff. You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to this. You need to respect God. I love the fact that his friends show up telling him what God says. And they want to talk about God, but nobody's talk, trying to talk to God but Job. How many of you have friends who want to show up and talk about God and about what God wants to do, but nobody's talking to God with you? When we suffer, we need to talk to God. And it's not unreasonable. Lesson number four. Anger is an acceptable response in suffering. I know. Somebody's going, what? Pastor's up here telling us it's okay to be mad. Yes. We spend all of our time in the aisles with Job. 
and nobody gets to the heart of it, and we miss his... Job is going off from 3 to about 38, 37. He's going all the way sideways. He is not a happy camper. He's mad. He is ticked off, and he's saying so. And his friends are telling him to stop, calm down, or they're going off on him and telling him you're wrong for feeling this way. But he's like, no, we miss his struggle when we miss his anger. We miss his toil. We miss his heart-wrenching, his feelings. We miss all of that when we miss that in his suffering. There was a guy who went to USC. His name was Junior Seau. I went to USC. Woo, woo. Junior was an amazing linebacker in the NFL, one of the greatest. And he would hit somebody, and then he would look at them on the ground and say, Say ow. Say ow. In other words, I hit you. It hurts. Say that. Junior Say ow. One day, killed himself. He shot himself in the chest. They found out later that he was suffering from CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's a brain injury that comes from getting hit too much. He had depression and dementia and memory loss because of it. And he deliberately shot himself in the chest because he wanted to make sure to preserve his brain so that they could look at it after he was gone. When I look at that, I think to myself, Junior did not have the freedom to say, ow. He finally decided to end it all. When we don't give people the room to express their anger, when we don't give people the room to suffer and to say what's going on with them when they suffer, when we require them to put it into a compartment, into a little tiny box that makes it consumable for us, and we say to them, I know it hurts, but you know, I need you to express it like this and don't yell and don't scream and don't cry and don't struggle and come to church and smile when we don't give people the room to deal with the pain of their trauma, we do them a disservice. When we don't give people the freedom to say, ow. God can hear you say, ow. God can hear you say, this hurts. God can hear you say, I'm struggling. God could hear me say, I don't even know what to say to you. And when he said to me, you're angry at me, he could hear me say, you're right. He could hear me say at one point, I can't even come get you from here. I can't call out to you. I need you to come get me. He can hear all of that. Why can't we hear that from each other? Job expresses his confusion, he voices his complaint, he declares his desires, and he's honest about his anger, even as his friends are telling him he's unrighteous for doing so. And so God steps in to settle the arguments. And God speaks, it says, out of the storm, and he says, who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me, where were you? He looks at Job and he says, I need you to man up. Come here. We're getting ready to have a little conversation. Look, come to Jesus moment. Me and you, Job. 
where were you? And then he begins this beautiful interrogation of Job that begins with, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what, or what were its footings where, uh, or what were its footings set on? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? He begins with the mystery and the complexion of creation. And then he moves on to the care of the creator. And he says, do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark where the deer gives birth? Can you number the month they, that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear their young? This is the loving heart of the creator who looks over his creation, who, as Jesus says, whose eye is on the sparrow, who clothes the lilies of the field. And then Jesus says, how much more would he love you? Does he care for you? So God is not saying this to humiliate Job. And if you get a chance, before you go to bed tonight, just read 38 to 42. It's beautiful. It's what I did when I said, when he said to me, you're angry at me. I read from there to the end, and it changed some things for me. But he's not saying this to humiliate Job. In fact, if you look at Hebrews 4.16, the writer of Hebrews says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's all Job was doing, approaching God boldly to receive mercy and to receive grace. Why would God humiliate or have an attitude with somebody that he boasted about at the beginning of the book, right? Now look, we all have this, this picture of God that he's, he's arrogant and he's upset with Job and he's going through all this stuff. That's, that's me as God. That's me saying all necky and snappy, where were you when I framed the heavens and the earth? What were you doing when I said, boom, light? <laughs> Bam, stars everywhere. Where were you? Nowhere. Why? Because you ain't God. I am. And now you got the nerve to talk to me and tell me to show up? Let me tell Bam! That's me as God. That's some of you guys as God. <laughs> That's not God as God. Because God is making a case for himself with knowledge. And what he said of Job is that he's saying, you don't see me. You're not working with enough, enough information to have this argument. I don't have a problem with you having the argument. You're just not equipped to have it. Because you see, everybody was laboring under a huge misconception about God. Everybody, including Job. And the misconception was this, that God's hand is transactional. That he does what he does as a transaction. If you're good, he's good to you. If you're bad, he's mean to you. And he punishes you. Satan says it at the beginning. Job says it, because if he weren't that, he wouldn't be that angry. So he surely thought he had done something, and he wants God to come down and tell him what he did. His friends are all telling him, you're either being punished for something you didn't do, or you're being warned for something that you might do, but it's all transactional. Everybody believed that. And that's not who God is. So in his answer, he is effectively telling Job, 
I see your confusion, but I don't deserve your suspicion. I hear your complaint, but I don't deserve to be accused as unjust. I know your desires, but don't demand that I fulfill them right now. And I feel your pain and your anger, but I'm not detached from them. In fact, I know what it feels like to lose a child. I know what it feels like to have pain. Look at the cross. Look what I've done for you. Look what I've given up for you. What I've sacrificed for you. Have you considered, he said, my servant, Job? Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart of a person. The first thing he says is, have you considered my servant, Job? He's got a servant's heart. He wants to serve me. And we're so busy looking at the outside of what things are and what people do that we miss this very specific thing that God said. He's my servant. But then Job and Job's friends turn around and don't give God the same courtesy. Look at his heart. I know it's hard and I know it's rough and I know you're suffering, and I know you're confused, and I know there's pain, and I know there are unre unrequited things. Stuff you want, there are things that you need. Look at his heart. Look at what he has done. Look at what he is doing. Look at what he will do. Suffer. Suffer with some knowledge. Some of you are going through some things and, and when I look at Job, what I see are two great divides. Job divide, God divides Job from his friends and then he divides Job from himself. Now what do I mean by that? These are Job's friends. They used to all think the same way. They are his friends. They come and see about him. They sit with him for seven days in silence. And yes, we can look at them and say they're kind of jerks and they say the wrong things and all of that, but they're his friends. And they used to hang out. And they used to think the same things. And they used to feel the same way. And some of you hang out with people who say some things that God says that is not true. Some of you hang out with people who say those poor people deserve to be poor. Those homeless people deserve to be homeless. And God is pricking your heart and separating you from those people. And he's saying to you, that's not right. And that's not okay. And so Job becomes one of the very people that maybe he and his friends together used to think they deserve that. Job is a very different man by the time it's over. And then God says to Job, I get it, I see you, I understand what you're going through, but part of this is about me separating myself from you in the sense that you need to know that I'm God, that I'm not like your buddies. It's not transactional. 
that I not only love you and I not only see you and I not only feel you and I not only care for you, but I can get everything done that needs to be done and I can keep you where you are for as long as you are there. I can keep you. I can take you out and I can keep you in because I'm God and I'm not judging you and I'm not angry at you, and I'm not punishing you, and I'm not looking at your suffering and not caring that you go through it. I'm not doing any of that because I'm God and because I love you. And if you want any proof about how I love you, look at the cross. Just give me that. Look at my heart for you. So when Job looks at all of this, he says, I know, I get it now. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And then God says, and I think this is telling, Job not one time spoke incorrectly about God. He continues to be blameless and upright and fearing God and shunning evil. But the standard by which we measure that is a God who is blameless and who is righteous and who is to be feared and who is holy. So Job understands him a little bit better now because he went through his suffering, because God is not frivolous. He used Satan to help Job. Then he uses Job to help his friends. And Job then prays for these people who God just says, now you guys who thought you knew who I was, so over you. You better deal with Job. Then Job can speak to me on your behalf because I don't want to talk to you, which I love. I wish I was Job in that case because I don't know what I would be like, you know, hooking them up like that. But that's just me. See, everybody go home and pray and be happy that you're not God, that I'm not God. So he does this. And I love that he does it that way because what I want to do today as we end is I would like for us, if we're suffering, I want us to have the courage to call it out, to call out your suffering and to ask for prayer. We're going to have some people standing at these doors here and I want you to go ask for prayer or even ask the person sitting next to you to pray for you and or to pray with you because we need to care about each other like this. We need to begin to really care about one another like this. And if you know somebody who's suffering, I want you to pray for them today. And I want you to pray for them the way I think we should pray for Job. Call out their suffering. Don't judge them. Understand how they're feeling. Understand their pain. Be in fellowship with it. Because that's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be with one another. I want to pray for you guys. And I want to pray that we become a church that loves each other. That loves each other enough to see each other. To see the pain. To feel the hurt to be all right sitting in silence with the suffering and to walk alongside one another. We can do this. Let's pray.
God, surely we don't understand all that we go through or all that others go through, but you do. You who laid the foundations of the earth, you know and you understand. And so my prayer today, Lord, is that you would bless this church with an unusual amount of compassion and understanding and care and the ability to reach out to one another, to look at a person and to speak to their hearts, to listen to their eyes, to pay attention to their pain, to not judge their pain, to walk alongside that if there's nobody else standing next to us, that we would not send that person away to speak to a pastor or a, a, another person that we think might be a leader, but that we would have the courage to stand there with them and pray for them. That we would look out for our brothers and sisters who don't even know who we are. That we would see somebody on the street and not think they deserve to be there. That we would look in their eyes, that we would treat them, as Joe said, not like a piece of meat or not like nobody, but that we would look into their eyes and ask, how are you? That as we approach people, that we would not cast down our eyes in hopes that somebody would not look at us on the street, that we would remember to smile, that we would simply say hello, that here in this church it would become a regular thing for us to simply care, and then that it would become a regular thing for us to deeply care. Father, you cared about us. You care about us. You will care about us. There is not a moment in time when you don't care about us. Put a little bit of that in us. Father, as your people come to your table and take communion, let us remember that you have fellowship with us in our suffering, that we have fellowship with you in your suffering. Father, if you nudge us to ask for prayer at the doors, Lord God, Give us the courage to get up and walk there and say, I need to pour out my heart, my complaint, my desire, my confusion with someone to God. And we thank you, Lord, finally, that Jesus sits at your right hand and intercedes on our behalf and the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts and groans when we can't. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Father, continue to love this place as deeply as you do and continue to show us who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.